interpreting the scriptures. Not always that easy, is it? Oh, my, my, my goodness. We, now, we're told uh, that it, when we become a follower of Christ that either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. We're told that dusty Bibles equal dirty lives. We're told that if you are, you are either in the Word and the Word is conforming you to the image of Christ or you're in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. As a Christian, the most important thing we have down here is, is the Word of God. Through it, we're transformed. Through it, we know Him. Through it, He speaks to us. We recognize that. Yet, the Barna Research Group... And through a survey they did, said that only 10% of those who claim to follow Christ also claim to read a portion of the word every day. And, and Barna believes that's way too high. Said so during the survey, the, the group that said that they read the, the Bible at least once a week, many of them admitted that they hadn't touched it the previous week before the survey. So we think that we're reading it more than we're reading it. Uh, now, what are the reasons for this? When it's so important for a believer's life. Well, you know, probably the one thing we would all say is, well, we're busy. We're just busy people. And I say that, hogwash. Uh, that's not the reason. Uh, that's one we hide behind. But, but if, if in fact this guides us and it directs us and it teaches us of God, of course we want to be in it. So we open it. And we read about the dimensions of the tabernacle and cleaning mold off of your, your house and, and virgins carrying oil and, and a seven-headed beast with lots of eyes and sacrificing food to idols. And we're going... It's supposed to be life-giving for me, but I don't have a clue to make heads or tails of this. You know, it's like the Bible is here, and I don't want to defame it and all, but my life is over here. The two just don't intersect. They just don't intersect. I'm not sure how to cause them to, to cross paths without being very creative in my thinking. Now, there's a lot of folk who will help us interpret God's Word. Of course, there is preachers. We will certainly, uh, pastors tell you what, what it means. There are uh, Bible study guys in writing curriculum and DVDs. And, of course, they want to tell you. And lots of authors will tell you what it means. And you've got people on the radio and televangelists who will tell you what it means. And folk with billboards and bloggers and self-proclaimed authorities who set up their own web page. Even the guy at the Super Bowl who's holding up his John 316 sign in the end zone. He has got an idea interpretation of what that text means. And he's got something running through his head as far as what application looks like in your life or, or my life. A lot of folk want to interpret God's word for us. And here's the deal. If we don't know how to interpret it ourselves, we will be victims. We'll be victims to the guy that's the smoothest talker, to the person that we think, for whatever reason, we, we like where they grew up or whatever. We're going to like them, and so we're going to go with, with their interpretation. Whether it's wrong or right, we will be victims. And if we pass that stuff around, then we will be perpetrators as well. It's important that we understand what, what, what do you need to interpret God's word. How, what, answering that question is, is what this series is about. And we would say that, okay, we need sincerity. Let's start there. That's something that we will assume. Uh, but sincerity by itself is, doesn't mean we're going to interpret properly. Let's say I want to sing a solo on Sunday morning. And Nathan, for whatever reason, lets me do it. Okay? Uh, now, I can be sincere. Let's assume for a second that I'm going to be really, really, really sincere. I mean, no one's going to be more sincere. I'm very, very sincere. That does not mean I'm going to nail it with this solo. We recognize that sincerity alone does not give you a good result. It takes more. We're going to add hard work in there. 
If I'm going to sing the solo, I've got to get the lines down, right? I've got to get the words. I've got to work with my accompanist. I've got to, got to get the sound guys and my stage presence. I've got, to, I've got to work hard. I've got to practice. These folk who are here, up here on Sunday morning, don't think they just show up and they just know how to do all this. They work long, long hours struggling and wrestling and, and practicing through. You've got hard work. But I think you would agree with me. Simply sincerity plus hard work does not necessarily guarantee a good interpretation. If, in fact, for the solo, I put in lots of work, more work than anybody, and I've got my words memorized and I'm ready, if I've got a tin ear, and if I can't carry a tune in a bucket, you know, it's going to horrify, it's not going to glorify, it's going to be a bad situation. And so, so we need the right stuff, right? You've got sincerity, is important, and you've got hard work, but then you also need the right tools. And so, again, the series of, of scripture twisting, the goal is for us to put into our toolbox of interpretation five or six tools to be able to interpret God's word. These are not the only tools or the only, the only rules of interpretation, but we're going to go over five or six that will aid us in a major, major way. Now, last week we looked at the first rule of interpretation. If you weren't here, you can grab the CD. That would be helpful. And that first rule is this. Biblical example is not authoritative. Biblical example is not authoritative. David was a man after God's own heart, right? David prayed, I should pray. David was a man after God's own heart. David slew Goliath, I should slay my giants as well. David was a man after God's own heart. David had many wives, I should... Whoa, 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 whoa. Biblical example is not authoritative. It's not a biblical command at at all. Um, What's the first rule? We're going to hopefully go through two more rules today. And so three in to- total at the end of this, this day. And the second rule is this. If you've got your notes in your bulletin, you can pull that out. You can grab a pen. Hopefully you get a, the Bible going. And we'll, we'll put some of that together. Second rule that we're, we're looking at this morning is that the Bible best interprets itself. The Bible best interprets itself. If Sally's talking and Sally says something, you want to get some clarity around that, you can talk to Jane, you can talk to Harry, you can talk to whoever else, but if you really want clarity, you probably should talk to Jane. The Bible best interprets itself. If we want to know what it says, we need to look at what it says. Uh, If I am preaching and I say, my home is going to be a haven, number one thing in our house is we're all about haven. We're going to protect each other. Haven, haven, haven. You're going, okay, got that. He's all about haven. Then you hear me out in the hallway. I'm talking to someone I say, my house. We're all about rationality, man. We're going to be rational. Number one thing in my house is we're going to be rational. We got feelings and all, but we recognize that, that thinking, we're gonna, that's what it's about. We're thinkers. We're going to be rational. And you go, I thought it was haven, but maybe it's switch. Okay. A little, little while later, you hear me talking. And I say, you know what? Number one thing in our house is stewardship. Man, we are going to be stewards and we're going to be good stewards. Now, at this point, you probably want to call me out. And say, you honking liar, would you just get your story together? It's changing everyone you talk to, someone different. But if you came into my house and you were to go into our our bedroom, we have framed on our wall our family mission statement. Harris, we want to be a haven. And we explain what that is. We want to be ambassadors. We want to know our God. We want to be reaching out. Our lives are for others, not ourselves. We want to be rational. We recognize our emotions and give them attention, but, but we need to think clearly. How we feel and what's right may be two different things. Integrity reigns. We want to be people of integrity, stewardship, of all of that which God has given us. What we're saying is you can't take one piece of the puzzle and draw the whole... draw draw. Uh, Final definitions on one piece. 
You've got to get all of the pieces and put them all together. And then look at, at the whole picture. Here's what rule two means. Unless a doctrine sums up all of what scripture says on it, it cannot be considered biblical. Unless a doctrine sums up all of what scripture says, it cannot be considered biblical. Let me give you some examples. First example is the idea of judging. Whoa, turn to, if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 7. Judging. Judging. Maybe you've seen somebody doing something they ought not to be doing, and you've called them on it. You've tried to do it right and everything else, but you've called them on it only to have them put their, your, their finger in your face and say, Jesus said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't judge me. You're full of sin too. The only difference is I don't know your sin and you know mine. Listen, if you're not perfect yet, you don't, you don't start calling me out. You got your stuff too. Don't judge. Jesus says it. We go off. What do you do with this? And Romans 14 would seem to uh, concur. Next verse. Here we go. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. So you say, well, what do you do with this? Do you not discern? Do you not judge sin? Do you not call sin what it is? This is what Jesus said, didn't he? He said, don't, don't judge. I mean, Sounds right. I, I, I don't know. But then you remember. Unless a doctrine takes all of Scripture into account on that subject, it cannot be considered biblical. So we go back to even the, the text that Jesus originally said this, Matthew 7. And in verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. He's not talking about literal dogs and literal pigs. He's talking about the condition of somebody's soul, heart. He's making a judgment. He's discerning. He's able to look at someone and know, discern whether what kind of condition their soul is in. He would call us to do the same thing here. In verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. He's calling us to be discerning. He's calling us to judge. He said, on the outside, they look good. They look like they're Christians. They look like they're wonderful, but inwardly... They're not. He's calling us to discernment, to make a judgment. Now, this is compounded even further with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's going to weigh in on this. Verse 1, he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. I mean, you can imagine the Corinthians saying, Paul, Paul, Jesus said, judge not, man. We're just trying to obey Jesus. And Paul is yelling at him here. He's saying, what are you doing? I mean, sin, it's like, it's like cancer. You don't have a little bit in your body and go, well, it's just a little bit. It's not a big deal. Hey, I'm not going to say it's just a little bit. You go after it because it has the ability to destroy and ultimately it will. And Paul says, sin left unchecked in the body of Christ will destroy. You go after it. He's commanding us to do that. Matter of fact, he's yelling at us if we don't judge. And then in verses 12 and 13 
of 1 Corinthians 5, he gives us another aspect of this, this topic. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul says, non-believers, people who don't claim to follow Christ, leave them alone. Don't get down on them for not following the standard that God has set only for his children. Now you know that the church gets clobbered regularly for this very issue. For coming down on non-believers, holding them up to a standard that they never signed up for. And Paul says, leave them alone. Don't get down on them. Yes, you're right. Do not judge them. But anyone who claims to be a believer, a follower of Christ, oh, it's another issue. It's another issue. And you say, well, it looks like Paul's over here and Jesus is over here. Two different things. Ah, Jesus. Next verse says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. It seems that there are wrong judgments and right judgments. And this is what Jesus is referring to. Back in, in, in Matthew 7. Let's just look at this, this a little bit closer. I don't know if you've ever been taken out of context. You said something and someone took you away. We want to make sure we don't do that to Jesus here. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? Notice what he says here. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Does he say don't judge? The whole idea, he's saying, saying, no, you should. But look at yourself first. There's a difference between judgmentalism, is what he's after, in making a right judgment. Two different deals. Galatians 6.1. I think we've got this one up. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. This restoring one gently. This idea of being concerned for the person that we, we are holding in judgment. Uh, judgmentalism is its spiritual superiority. It's not seeing my own stuff nor caring. It's just coming at the other person. Remember the, the uh, Luke 18. You've got the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. And they're praying at the temple. Remember this? And the, the, the tax gatherer is banging his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee is saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this sinner. I fast twice a week. And let me tell you about my giving record, Lord. You know, he starts going on and on and on. And Jesus condemns the Pharisee, not because he fasted, not because he gave, but because he didn't stop and recognize his sin. He was spiritually superior in his eyes to this other person. Remember uh, uh, John 8. The Pharisees, they bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Remember this? Now, it's always amazed me why they didn't bring the man. He's just as guilty, right? Uh, unless the woman was set up. And so they bring her to Jesus. And they also, all of them, bring a stone in their hand because the law called for her to be stoned or to be killed. And they say, testing Jesus, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? They know. He's either going to deny the law or he's going to have this woman killed and lose, lose credibility in people's eyes. And so it says in John 8 that Jesus doesn't say a word. He looks down into the dirt and he starts writing in the dirt. Now, the text doesn't tell us what he wrote, 
But tradition says that what he did is he was writing the sins, the secret sins of the hearts of the men who were standing there. So he's kind of looking at them. Oh, yeah. He's looking at them. And writing out. And so these guys are following Jesus and they're walking, looking in there, seeing in the dirt their sins. And Jesus is looking at them and looking at their sins and then says, whoever's without sin, you throw the first rock. They all recognized. Now, he wasn't saying what the woman did was right or anything else. He was saying the way we approach people is to restore, not to stone. That's what, that's what, that's what Galatians 6.1 is saying. This is the thought. Let's say you have a, a child, teenager, he's an adult, adult person who's walking far away from the Lord. And you know that's just killing you. It's eating you up. You know what the person's doing better than anybody else. But you walk through church and a couple of people are over here talking about your child in negative ways. You're going to go rip their heads off, basically, aren't you? You're going to defend them. They're not saying what he did was right or what he's doing is right. But you love them. And you don't want to stone your child because they are doing something wrong. You know they are, but you don't want to stone them. You want to restore them. You'd give anything for them to come back. This is how you can tell whether or not you've got a judgmental heart or not. When you're thinking thoughts about someone else and you're saying righteously, well, it's, it's, it's right, it's against the law. If, in fact, you want to stone them versus restore them, it's judgmentalism. If, in fact, you're not thinking of that person as you would be thinking of your own child, it's judgmentalism. Galatians says that when someone's caught in a sin, which means we've got to discern it, we see it, you who are, are godly, should restore the person. You're seeking to honor them and respect them. You don't want to hurt them. And then, uh, then he says, but watch yourself. Keep in mind that you got feet of clay too. Keep in mind that you fall all the time. Don't go in there like you're better than anybody else. If you go in that respect, that's the appropriate judgment. And we're not doing a whole, whole study on this topic. Again, this is something that actually we've got on the schedule, preaching schedule for down the road because God has a lot to say about this. But, but to say that unless a doctrine encompasses all of what Scripture says, it does, it's not considered biblical. It's not considered biblical. Um, give me another uh, example. Let me open Pandora's box a little bit with this one. Okay, Might as well, right? God's sovereignty and man's free will, especially regarding salvation. Now, these are rhetorical. Let me ask some rhetorical questions. Don't answer out loud. Uh, who chose? Did God choose you or did you choose God? And don't just say, oh, yes. The answer is yes. Forget that one for a minute. Um, did, who chose first? Now, if you're a good Presbyterian, Reformed, you're going to say, well, God chose first. If you're a good Baptist or Wesleyan, you're going to say, no, no, we chose first. This is the camps that have divided the church for quite some time. And some folk will stand on one section or the other and say, oh, well, well, this is the way it is. But unless a doctrine encompasses all of what Scripture says about it, it cannot be considered biblical. So we've got Ephesians. So we have it up. Ephesians 1. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay. Romans, this is Romans 9. Romans 9, 10, 11, toughest chapters in the Bible, I'm convinced. They told us in Greek class that if you were a real scholar, your Greek New Testament would open on its own to Romans 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> Romans 9, verse, verse 10. It says, not only that, but Rebecca's children... 
had the same father, our father Isaac. She had twins in her womb. She, she had Jacob and Esau. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, they had no actions, no motivations, no thoughts, anything. In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? That's a normal question. When you read this, you go, that's not fair. Was God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, or whom I choose to have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice this last part. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You go, that's heavy text. Isn't that a heavy text? You go, well, Maybe this is another one of those things where Paul and Jesus are not seeing eye to eye. Jesus reminds his disciples, you did not choose me. Just keep this in mind, y'all. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's a a, a wild doctrine. And if you just stand there, if that's that's where you land and you just look at those verses, you can come up with some wild application. But remember, a doctrine's not considered biblical until it takes into account all of what Scripture says. And so you keep looking. Jesus, it says here, is crying when he says this. He rides in on triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and he's crying. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. I would look at this in light of the other verses and say, Jesus, come on, cut them some slack. It's not that they're unwilling. You didn't choose them. It's your fault. You know, just choose them and everything will be fine, but it's your fault. But somehow, Jesus, who understands his sovereignty better than you and I do, also recognizes the culpability of human choice. Their their, their freedom is not negated here in any way, shape, or form. This this comes together, these these two uh, doctrines that are... uh, Let me share with you real quick Joshua. I almost forgot Joshua. Joshua says... um, But serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He's making a choice. As a matter of fact, all of the commandments in Scripture are given with the idea that you have the power to choose obedience or to reject them. Every single judgment in Scripture, every single judgment is conditioned upon your ability to to reject that which is given. It seems that that's very clear. How do these two come together? It seems like they're opposing sides here. What happens? Acts 4, 27 and 28. Mind-blowing verses. These early churches praying. They said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. How do you explain this? Scripture doesn't try to. But they knew. Scripture is not landing on one side or the other, but is willing to to hold the tension. Now, this is important for us, because if we're deciding we're going with the pure God sovereignty thing, and we're going to blow off the free will thing, and most people will lean one way or the other. If you're leaning too high here, what you're doing is you're saying, you know, why pray? Don't need to pray. God's already ordained everything, especially you don't need to pray for anyone's salvation. If they're elect, they're in. If they're not elect, before the foundation of the world, I have no say in it. Oh, well, I'm not praying. 
If you're, if you're on this side, you're the uh, hyper-Armenian side, hyper-Armenian side, what you're doing is you're saying, listen, it's all my issue, man. And so you're going to pray and you're going to be anxious and you're going to sweat and you're going to pray more passionately and louder and get more people involved. And, and if it doesn't come to be, it's because you somehow or other people somehow didn't pray enough. It's all your issue. And on the evangelism side, why share my faith? God's already elected. Whoever he's elected is in. And on the Armenian side, it's easier to say, I'm going to have to resort. You won't say this consciously, but it's easy then to resort to gimmicks or resort to limiting the gospel or watering things down because you've got to get them to cross this line. You've got to make it easier for them. And, and Scripture holds attention. And we, we pray, but we... We, prayers, if you think about it, are useless unless there is a sovereign God, right? Unless there's a God who can interject and does have the power and the authority to turn on someone's lights. It's useless to pray, right? Uh, we, we, the God who ordained the end also ordained the means. It means the prayer, sharing our, our faith. Now, again, we're not doing a whole bone study on this thing, even though it's, I hope your brain hurts a little bit on this one. Mine does. Uh, but to say... That, that the Bible interprets itself. Unless a doctrine takes into consideration all of what Scripture says about it, it cannot be considered biblically. So you're driving down the street, you're listening to the radio preacher, and he says a verse, and then says a therefore, and says whatever. Maybe he's right, maybe not. And so the question in your mind is, I wonder, what else does Scripture say on this topic? You get home, you get on in front of your screen, BibleGateway.com, incredible resource. It's got a concordance there, a topical search there. You search up, where, where, does this idea or does this word appear anywhere else? And you start to look at it. Uh, you're reading a book and someone says, here's the verse, therefore, you go, well, maybe, but I wonder, what else Scripture says about this? Pull out your concordance off the shelf or your name's topical Bible or BibleGateway.com and you do some research. This is the hard work part. Uh, and it's opening a whole new uh, room of Bible study. So, so God's word, rule number two. Rule one, remember, was biblical examples are not authoritative. Rule two was the Bible interprets itself. Rule number three is, and we're going to touch this just, just tangentially because it's, you'll find out in a second. The Holy Spirit is important or necessary for proper interpretation. The Holy Spirit is uh, necessary for proper interpretation. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Because, first of all, let's look at this text. Uh, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, Holy Spirit, uh, probably the most neglected member of the Trinity, certainly the most misunderstood member of, of the Godhead. And yet, I would tell you, even if you're not charismatic in your theology, if, you, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you would not be here this morning. John 3, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He regenerates us. This whole born-again thing, the Spirit does that. The Spirit allows you to be able to understand and then makes all things new. The Spirit uh, sanctifies us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. When you're convicted, that's the Holy Spirit, God doing that for you. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans or John 14 through 16, resides within us. And then Romans 8, the Holy Spirit um, um, secures or confirms or assures us of our salvation. In Romans 12, he baptizes us into the body, which means he makes us one, if in fact we're believers. This whole idea of church, 
would not be working without the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12, he gives each of us gifts. If you're following him, he's given you gifts. In Jude verse 20, he helps us pray. In Romans 8, he prays for us. Uh, he, He will raise us from the dead after we die, the way he did Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You have no victory. You have no guidance without him. You have no illumination of God's word without him. Now, you get the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that once you come to know Christ, we're kind of like, wait, okay, when does the Spirit come? You, when you get the Holy Spirit, you get him the moment you accept Christ. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. If there's no Holy Spirit, there's no salvation. You get them the moment you believe. Romans 8, 9 says it real, straight up. Unless you have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. You have Him at that point. You don't get more of Him later on. You get a little bit here and then you get, you get all of God at one shot. You get them all. So when I talk about the Holy Spirit is important to interpretation, you're not going, okay, read the verse. Okay, God, speak to me. And first thing that pops in your head, got it. Okay, that must be the Spirit. That's not the way it works. I have got a lot of folk on my shelves who are incredibly intelligent men. They understand the languages very well. They're they're taking apart Scripture historically, linguistically, syntactically. They're doing an excellent, excellent job. However, many of them are not believers. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They, they don't, they're not following Christ. Uh, they see Scripture as literature only. They are all about information. Their teaching is informational. It's not bad, but the purpose of Scripture is not informational. It is transformational. They're never going to go to the Word of God saying, how do I apply this to my life, and what does it look like to know God? They're not done. That's the purpose of the book. That we might not know more things, that we might look like our God, that we might know Him and understand who He is and live lives that please Him. And that's something that non-believer just is not there. He doesn't understand. He doesn't care. And if you're someone who at one point the Holy Spirit was in your life in the front seat and you popped Him into the back seat, He's not driving anymore, you don't care either. Or if you want to know what Scripture says, you really just want to validate what you're doing. You, you, you're, you, but if in fact you're following after Him, and you care, and you come before him whenever you stop to do your Bible study, and you say, God, would, would you speak to me? Would you open my eyes? This does not guarantee that you will always interpret correctly. Uh, because you all, it would if, in fact, you only brought the Holy Spirit to your interpretive process, but you also bring your baggage, you bring your heritage, you bring your limitations, you believe, bring junk you've heard in the past, you bring your own sin. And so we see is in a mirror dimly. You know, we, we're, we're going to do the best we can, and we're going to get some of it, but we're going to fail at, at times. So, so the Holy Spirit is necessary to interpret. And I say that to say if you're not a believer and you're trying to interpret the Word of God, you're trying to get heads and tails out of it, it's another, another issue. Now, let me uh, touch on the corollary here. Real important. This is, I think, the key part of this rule. Corollary, and I don't have it in front of me. I'm trying to remember the words. It's not on the screen, but it should be in your notes. Something like this. The Holy Spirit will never give a meaning to a text that was not originally given. That's so important. Please hear that. I mean, the Holy Spirit will never give a meaning to a text that was not originally given. In other words, a text cannot mean what it never meant. Can you, you see where this can go, right? If I'm reading the Word and you know what? The Spirit speaks to me and says this. 
And then you, you tell me your thing. You say, well, yeah, I'm glad the Spirit said that to you, but this is what he said to me. And I'm saying, well, this is what it originally said. Well, I'm glad that's what it really meant for Paul, but the Spirit meant this for me. And someone else said, suddenly all of us have our own private Bibles. And, and the authority of God's Word is out the window. The Word of God, if it says everything, it says nothing. There is one, inter- we hammered this last week, there's one interpretation to every text, many applications, but one interpretation only. It's that authorial intent. And that's what we're going after in our, in our Bible study as well. I was in uh, Plantner Church. We were in uh, Cincinnati. And uh, a friend, neat guy, came to me and said, Holy Spirit spoke to me in his word. And he told me that this church plant is going to be great. It's going to fly. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be wonderful. And this is the verse he gave me. And he quoted Habakkuk 1.5. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. He said, we, we, we would not even believe the great things God's going to do through this church. And I said, you need to look at the next verse. It says, the great thing that God's going to do, Habakkuk 1.6. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. The great thing that God's going to do is he's sending the Babylonians into Jerusalem to, to raise it, to destroy the temple, to, to exercise incredible judgment on the people. That's the, the, the proper interpretation of this text. It's not God's going to do good things throughout. It's not... Proper interpretation. That might be so somewhere else, but right here, it is if you abandon God, He's going to abandon you to judgment. Judgment will come. One way or the other, it will be there. Look at Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, I think he's He's talking about the book of Revelation, but I think in the scope of canon, I believe under the sovereignty of God, this refers to all of His Scripture. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and of the holy city. In other words, God's saying, don't mess with my words. Don't change the meaning. Don't invent, don't put words in my mouth and make promises I've never made. I can speak relatively clear, thank you. I can communicate for myself and I've said what I've said. Don't change it, is what he's saying. The Bible interprets itself. The Holy Spirit is um, uh, necessary for proper interpretation. Now, let me go on parenthesis for a second. Parenthetical note. If you are here and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, and you need to, to, to know this. You're very special. You're very important. God is crazy in love with you. You were created for Him. You were. But according to Scripture, you're separated from Him. You're not experiencing His grace. You're not forgiven by Him. Uh, You are left to your own resources to deal with life. How is that working for you? You weren't always like that. Mankind wasn't. When God first created mankind in the garden, Adam and Eve, they they were one. God was walking with them. There was intimacy. They were close. But then sin came in, and sin is our own... Anarchy, we're going to be in charge of our own life. And that was a gap. We were all born into that. And so we are separated from God from the time we're, we're born. Mankind often is going to try to get to God and do different things, good works, religion. But still, they end up short. And he feels incredibly lost. That's why Jesus 
came 2,000 years ago to die on the cross. He was God in the flesh. And when he died on the cross, God the Father looked into my life, all of my specific sins, not sin generically or general, and put them on the back of Jesus. That thing that separated me from God, he took away. And when, when I come to him and surrender my life to him and recognize that that's why he did, he died in my stead, then what scripture says is the Holy Spirit comes within. He opens my eyes. All things are made new. Do you need hope? Do you need peace? Do you need help not to get your own way, to put him in front of the steering wheel? You're in the back seat and say, Lord, you, I'm just surrendering my life to you. If you take, let's take a moment to pray. This is not the end of the, the message. We're almost there. But would you just bow with me for just a second? I just got to say, if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, right now I'm going to pray a prayer. And if this reflects your heart, would you kind of repeat it back to him? He hears what we're thinking. It's, it's, Lord, I've been living my life for myself. I've been making my own calls. But I want you. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Would you forgive me? Right now I surrender my life to you. Would you take it and use it in Jesus' name? Okay, if you prayed that, and you meant it just to God, I just got to let you know this. In front of the... In the pew in front of you, the pew rack, there's a little card that's marked yes on it. You see that? That is, is the goal of this thing, is you can fill that out and bring it to that connection table. And just you know, All you have to do is give it to the person, and they've got some information, some next steps stuff that would be so good for you to have. And so if you've surrendered your life to Christ this morning for the first time, that's where you can go. All right, now here's, here's a question we want to deal with right now. What do I do with people, good, maybe godliest people, but we have different interpretations of Scripture. What, what do we do with that? Because keep in mind, even though I'm, the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit's necessary, it doesn't guarantee a great, perfect interpretation. And so we might be different sides. What do I do with that? Well, here's some, several things real quick. First of all, you cannot develop an all-interpretations-are-equal kind of approach. My interpretation's right. Your interpretation's right. His interpret- no, no. Back to that idea. There's only one interpretation. And I might be wrong and you might be wrong. Or we both, you know, we both might have part of the truth or whatever. But we can't all be right. So don't, don't, please don't go down that road. So second second uh, application here when dealing with, with uh, folk who interpret differently is choose your battles wisely. Oh, man. Oh, man. Several years ago, a handful of people got together, Christian leaders, and their the question was, who can we work with? Can we work with each other? And they've determined five things that they said are, are paramount, they're primary. And I, this has helped me over the years. First thing was the inspiration of Scripture, that this really is God's Word. It's, it, the Bible is from Him. We all have to agree on that. And number two, we have to agree with the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. Here's the deal. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then you know what? God is not His Father. Somebody else is. And He's not the Son of God. And His death on the cross, maybe He was a great martyr or whatever else, but it wasn't, it wasn't for you or for me. It was, it was limited because He was just a man. So we believe in the virgin birth deity of Christ. We also believe in the atoning death, which means this. When he died on the cross, it wasn't by, because Rome was mean or an accident or anything else. It was for me. It was for you, for our sin. A fourth thing we hold to is, is the physical resurrection of Jesus. 
he, he actually rose physically. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this. He, Paul says, if there was no empty tomb, the cross was empty. If there was no empty tomb. You got that? That, that unless we, Jesus died for us, which is great, but unless he rose from the dead, his death means nothing for us. It's his resurrection that appropriates that for us. Every message in the book of Acts is all over the resurrection. It's the resurrection. So we believe he physically rose. Then the fifth thing, we believe he's coming back one day. Not necessarily before the trib or during the trib or after the trib, uh, but he's going to come back. We don't have the time figured out yet, but he's promised he's going to come back. Everything else, my opinion, is secondary. Now, you might want to add a couple more things to that list. Please don't make it 84 things or you're never going to associate with anybody. Uh, there's enough divisions in the body of Christ. Satan's doing a good enough job. We don't need to help him out. So those are the, 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 the fundamentals. The third thing is we need to keep in mind that though God's word is infallible, you and I are not infallible. You know what? I may be wrong. I'm doing the best I can. I'm thinking, but I may be wrong. That mindset will go a long way. And then fourthly is we may have to just agree to disagree agreeably. You know, I said, uh, if you know John MacArthur and you know R.C. Sproul, they're, they're friends, and they believe, they hold on those first five, the five fundamentals, they, they both are all over those. But after that, they have some very unique theological distinctives. They don't see eye to eye. But yet, MacArthur will have R.C. Sproul preach in his pulpit, and R.C. Sproul will invite John MacArthur to speak at his Ligonier Bible Conference. They recognize that, that the, they're not going to divide the body over secondary issues. Uh, we ought not to do so as well. This is really the heart of the whole series, not so we can argue Please, the goal of the series is not so you can beat up the pastor after he's preaching because he proof texts something. It's not so you can take on your teachers. The whole goal of this whole series is that we might understand God's word aright, that we might know our God, that we might be transformed by his word. That's the goal, what we're after. Biblical examples are not authoritative. Bible best interprets itself. The Holy Spirit is necessary for proper interpretation and it's corollary that the Spirit will never give to a text a meaning that was not part of the original meaning.